Hello, Living Springs Church. My name is Brandon Cook. I feel so honored to get to teach today. So thank you for having me. I've been friends with Pastor John for, it's got to be about five or six years now. And I feel really grateful to call him a friend. I know him to be a man of deep faith and faithfulness and passion, integrity. Obviously, he's very funny. He's hilarious. And I know how much he loves this community. So the fact that I was invited to get to speak here truly feels like an honor, and I'm grateful. I was a pastor for um, over 10 years in Long Beach, and actually just retired, not from, from all of work life, that'd be nice, but I retired from pastoral work. And uh, so this is the first time that I've taught in a few months, and I feel, it feels really fun, feels exciting to me. So I celebrate the gospel with you today, the good news that Jesus is the king who makes all things new, and we can follow him into an entirely new way of living, an entirely new way of being human beings. As we follow Jesus then, I want to read a scripture from Luke chapter 5. It's just two verses, but boy does it speak volumes. Luke 5, verses 15 through 16. And we read... Despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster, and vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. John asked me to speak about the idea that maturity takes time. It's a good title for his sermon, Maturity Takes Time. And we can think about taking time in two senses. Maturity takes time in the sense that it takes a longevity of time, months and years played out over time. But maturity also takes time in the sense that it takes time away from the ordinary flow of life to become mature. Time outside the ordinary normal flow of life is required to become spiritually mature. Now, when Jesus taught he often used agricultural metaphors, parables with farming stories. These were not fast food parables. These are stories that implied growth over a long period of time. And then here in Luke 5, at a time of great success when, you know, people are saying, Jesus is the man. He's got a lot of Instagram likes. He's got a lot of followers Jesus steps away from this success. I don't think he related to it as, as he wasn't trapped by the idea of success like many of us are. But nevertheless, he, he steps away from what we might call success in order to move at a pace where he can maintain his own soul, where he can become re-centered. Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. I think this, this message from 2,000 years ago, it's obviously uh, relevant for us today we, you and I, we live in a society that may be the most hurried, frantic, and frenetic-paced society that's ever existed on the earth, and that's no hyperbole. That's no exaggeration. You look at the technology that we have. You know, where's my iPhone? Oh, it's, it's over there. I usually have it right in my pocket. I can always get to it. Or we have Instagram. We have social, Facebook. We have social media. We always have something that we can stimulate ourselves with, and social media produces often this great um, reactivity 
within our souls. You, you look on social media, people are posting all the time, often quite harshly, thinking that by being loud or obnoxious or by being certain about their opinion that maybe they think they're being virtuous. But the reactivity of social media, the way people communicate without care, is a part of this fast-paced, unthinking ethos of our society and our culture that encourages our human breakneck speed. Leonardo da Vinci, 500 years ago, purportedly said this, an average human looks without seeing, listens without hearing, touches without feeling, eats without tasting, moves without physical awareness, inhales without awareness of odor or fragrance, and talks without thinking. It's true 500 years ago, it's certainly true today. A hurried life is a life lived on automatic, which becomes a life not truly experiencing life. So, it's all, um, I guess the answer is simple, let's all just slow down. If we want to become mature, let's slow down. But we often find that that's not so easy, because there's something driving our hurry our hurriedness, our unwillingness to take time out of ordinary time. Uh, Sometimes what drives us is just a cultural expectation, a, a totally unrealistic expectation about how much or how fast a human being can move or should be able to do or accomplish. And sometimes beneath that, there's a belief that a life of hurry is a meaningful life or that a life at breakneck speed qualifies us as special, important people. Or maybe we think that by living at a breakneck speed of life, we're going to get approval for how hard we're trying. This is one of the, um, the Western illusions. It's probably a global problem now. It's the illusion or the belief that we can do all things, that we can be everywhere, that we can be without limit. When you look at the life of Jesus... Certainly in Luke 5, 16, Jesus didn't buy into that. He embraced his limitation. He got away from the, the thrill of the crowds, and it, the crowds, and it must, been, it must have been thrilling to have a crowd praise and adore you, but Jesus stepped away from all that. He didn't buy into the fact that he could be limitless. He embraced his limitation by coming to a place of prayer. We could, he could remember his dependence on God as his source, as his Father. I mean, the whole idea of the incarnation, which is the central to the Christian faith, it's the idea of embracing not limitlessness, but limitation, of proclaiming, I have limits, and it's only within these limits that I can truly live the life of God. I mean, Jesus, by becoming incarnate, by becoming love incarnate, well, it was the only way that he could live out a life of love. So there's actually an invitation in Scripture to do something which is crazy for us as as Americans, which is to embrace and celebrate and rejoice in our weakness because at the end of the day you don't come to God by your strength you come by your weakness you don't come to God by your strength you come by your weakness my daughter Charlotte she's seven years old she has um, my wife just gave her handed down to my daughter an American Girl doll named Samantha, and I've been learning a lot about American Girl dolls, and she has all these outfits, and uh, Charlotte had a little um, uh, Christmas uh, music box that was Samantha's, and it broke, and she brought it to me, and my immediate response is, oh, 
oh, I can fix this or I can get a new one. But I knew in my soul that what was right was to actually say, no, we're not gonna, things break and we're not gonna get a new one. We're not gonna buy a new one. We're gonna embrace the limitations. We're gonna embrace reality. I knew that, that even though part of me wanted to fix it to make it better to get a new one, I knew that what was right in my soul, in that place where God is often speaking in our conscience, if we're willing to slow down and listen, I knew that it was right not to, to get a new music box. And I think even that is a lesson in unhurriedness that often we only can hear the nudges, the whispering of God's Spirit when we're moving at a slow enough pace that they don't blow right by us. Reminds me of God speaking to Elijah, not in the wind or the thunder, but in a still, small voice. You have to be moving at a certain pace to hear that, slow, that still, small voice. So, uh, a life of maturity takes time, both in terms of years and in terms of time out of the ordinary flow of time. But it's not sufficient then to just say, well, let's all just slow down. I mean, we need to slow down. We'll talk about practices for slowing down. But beneath those practices, we need a, a different heart posture, a new way of relating to ourselves and to God and to the world. And at the heart of this new posture is a confession in three simple words, I am limited. I am limited. And to just bathe and bask in that. I can't do all things. I can't be all things to all people. Listen, saying no is one of the greatest spiritual disciplines that you can master. You might check in with yourself. Are you someone who is afraid to say no? Maybe you're a people pleaser and you always want to say yes. You're terrified to say no. And there's a virtue, there's a bright side to wanting to please people. There can also be a dark side to it. Saying no can be one of the greatest spiritual disciplines. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I mean, Jesus himself, oftentimes, hey, Jesus, go here, do this. And Jesus would say, no, I'm called over here. Just as we see in Luke 15, 6, he gets away from the crowds. He takes time to become re-centered before God. He says no to the unceasing hustle and bustle that he could be tempted to indulge. And over and over again, Scripture points us into a posture or into taking this posture of embracing our own limitation. Here's some examples uh, from Scripture. John 15, 5. And Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What a beautiful thing to say back to God. You are the vine, I'm the branch. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Or Hebrews 4, where we're told, labor to rest. Let us therefore make every effort, let us labor to enter into the rest of God. Or 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. What a crazy thought for us in a culture where we are encouraged at all points to show how strong and how together we are, how we have, hold all things together. Paul says, no, I'm going to rejoice in how weak I am. Exodus 14, 14, the Lord himself will fight for you. You just stay calm. You're a limited human being. Just stay calm, and you'll find the abundance of God fighting for you. Over and over and over and over again, Scripture points us into this posture of dependence because there's a way of life wrapped up in, in unhurriedness with 
or with which or in which when we engage it, that unhurriedness allows us to access the abundance of the kingdom of God, the life, the provision, the goodness of God. I mean, to put it in metaphorical terms, grace is like a waterfall and the waters of that cascade are freely given without limitation. But we have to position ourselves beneath that water for it to empower us to do the good that it can do. And part of how we access that waterfall is by moving at a speed by which we can access it, by which we can be present in it. I don't often use military metaphors, but as I was preparing these, this sermon, I thought about the image of a jet fighter. You know, when, when a jet fighter refuels, it doesn't do it at Mach 2. It doesn't do it at breakneck speed. It slows down in order to sync up with the tanker. I think that's an apt metaphor for our life. To be refueled, you have to slow down to come into the source of fuel. And that's, again, what we see in Luke 5.16. Jesus often withdrew, slowed down into solitary places for prayer in order to be refueled. You may have heard this story. I love this story of, of John Ortberg, who is... Uh, the famous pastor at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church, I believe, wherever Menlo Park is, I think near Stanford. Anyway, he called Dallas Willard, Christian philosopher, writer, and he said, okay, Dallas, I wanna to talk to you, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, tell me about how I live this life that you're always talking about, this life that is caught up in the, the power of the kingdom of God. How do I live it? And John Ortberg reports that Dallas Willard slowed down and he said, well, John, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And John Ortberg wrote that down. Uh, that's good, that's great. Okay, what else? Long pause. John, there is nothing else. That's it. <laughs> you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Because unhurriedness represents that stepping out of the frantic speed of ordinary life into a different space. This is a way of being, a way of showing up in the world. It takes time to learn in a culture as hurried as ours. But we can learn to move at the pace of grace, as Alan Fadling describes it. I'm reminded of a story also from my own life. When I was uh, eight years old, I've always had a thing for toys that fly. Um, when I was eight years old, I, I wanted this helicopter. I was really excited on the box. It looked plain on the box that this toy would fly around the room, a remote control. And um, so I asked my parents for this for my birthday. And um, lo and behold, on my birthday, they gave me this present. I was so excited. And my mom and dad went upstairs. My mom went, went to sleep. My dad went uh, into his study upstairs. And I unboxed this helicopter, got it out. I was so excited to watch it fly. And, but turns out uh, it didn't fly. It just rose up on this dinky little plastic column about, I don't know, six or eight inches and then it would go back down. And I thought, what a ripoff. And I was, cr I was crushed as only a disappointed eight-year-old can be because I'd been so excited about this. And so I put it down and I went upstairs to talk to my father about it. And I was often afraid to go into my father's study because if he was in a, if you caught him in a bad mood, things could go poorly. But I was so disappointed that my disappointment urged me beyond my, my reluctance. And I, um, I remember walking uh, next to his chair and I said, dad, the toy doesn't 
fly. It doesn't do what I thought it would do. He didn't say anything. He just looked at me. And what I got out of the way that he looked at me, what I interpreted was, don't be a bother. Don't be disappointed. Don't make me feel bad that your toy doesn't work. Didn't say anything, but in an instant, that's what I got. And I said, you know what, it's, it's fine, it's great. I'm just gonna pretend that it can, okay? It'll be, it'll be fine, and I left. And I, this memory came back to me maybe a year and a half, two years ago, and I realized this is a significant memory for my life. Because one of the things that I decided in that moment, I don't know if it was literally in that moment, but certainly around that time of my life, what I decided was you can't trust the people close to you to really care about what's happening inside of you. Don't share your frustrations with them. Take care of them so they don't feel bad. And as I was looking back, as I've been looking back as a 40-year-old, 38, 39, 40-year-old over the last few years, I realized how much that decision in that moment affected my life. And what it did is it put me in motion in order to accomplish things and to be smart enough or good enough to make other people feel okay, to take care of other people. And in some sense, I have been in motion since my childhood, making sure that I don't trust the people closest to me or that I don't let them see my deep frustrations or disappointments. Of course, the reality is if you don't share your sorrows and disappointments with people, you also can't share with them your joys. You can't share with them your deep heart. You can't live an abundant life. And so I've spent the last few years stepping out of that motion that I've been in really since my childhood in order to step out of that automatic flow of life, to step out and to invite God into the space to mature me, to teach me how to trust how to trust not only him, but other people, the people closest to me with my sorrows and my joys and my disappointments so that I can live an abundant life. And what the Spirit, what God has been teaching me is that what I concluded about my earthly father, now there may have been some truth in that. Maybe he didn't want to hear my disappointment, but that that's not true of God as my father. That he does care about the disappointments and he does care about knowing my full heart. And so I've been in an unlearning process in order that I can mature into a new understanding of who God really is and who I can be with other people. But this maturing, it takes time. It has taken time. It's taken years for me to, to see that the, the impact that those decisions that I made as an eight-year-old, the conclusions I drew, it's taken me years to see the impact on my life and for God's spirit to call me out of those decisions into a new way of being. And it takes time and practice to engage a new way of being, a renewed or a redeemed way of being. It takes practice. I was at a dinner last night and I was practicing with a dear friend, telling her my disappointment, telling her my sorrows. I'm practicing <laughs> a new way of being. And I think in a similar sense, uh, 
In Luke 5.16, I think that's what's happening in the heart of Jesus. He's withdrawing from the crowds. He's withdrawing from the pace of life so that he can become fully present with God, his Father, so that he can become fully mature as the Son of God, so he can be fully present in life and ministry. Because when we are willing to create time out of the normal flow, we hear from God in ways that mature us. There's a work of the Spirit that happens when we stand beneath the water of the waterfall, when we slow down like the fighter getting refueled. Maturity takes time, not only in years, but in time taken out of the flow of ordinary life. Well, how do we do this? How do we actually practice this? Let's land on some practices. Because in Luke 5.16, what do we see Jesus doing? He's engaging a spiritual practice, a spiritual discipline. He's practicing living an unhurried life so that he can become fully mature. He's, he's engaging the spiritual practice of withdrawing to a place to pray, to be in nature, I imagine. Perhaps to sit underneath the stars and just be in awe and wonder at creation. All of these are spiritual practices. Let's talk, and we could list a hundred spiritual practices right now, but let me list three or four. Just so that we're thinking in real concrete terms and not just up here. In other words, as you hear this message, what, hearing the message is not really worth that much. You probably know everything already that I'm saying, but where there is value is in actually engaging in your life and putting into practice some sort of response, some sort of discipline. One practice, one discipline that I engage is the Lord's Prayer every day. I pray through the Lord's Prayer. I start with, Father, your name is good. Let your kingdom come in me and my family. Give us the bread that we need. Forgive my sins as I forgive everyone who sins against me. Lead us out of everything bad and into your life, your wholeness. Those five phrases, and I'll pray them, and I'll stop it after each one and pray in response to them. So that each day, the practice of prayer is different because I never know where I'm going to stop or what is going to be a sticky place where I slow down. Sometimes it's when I'm talking about forgiveness and I, I actually forgive people name by name. Sometimes it's when I'm asking for provision. I never know how the prayer is going to unfold. But it's a practice that slows me down. And I think much like Jesus in Luke 5, 16, puts me in a centering place before God as Father. So that type of prayer is a way of taking time to mature out of the flow of everyday life. Here's a different question. When's the last time... You sat down and just let your mind wander and did nothing. Now think about it. When's the last time that you sat and did nothing? Maybe you feel guilty doing that, or maybe when you try to do that, you have to reach for your phone or <laughs> check social media. But there's something in the brain called the default mode network, which kicks on when we allow ourselves just to sit and let the mind wander. Think about it, just sitting and letting your mind wander is actually a spiritual discipline. And scientists have now demonstrated that the more time we spend in our default mode network without picking up a phone, without frantically doing something, that actually it has a healing effect on the brain. That it correlates to lower uh, incidences of brain degeneration. I believe Alzheimer's included in that. So, you know, find a nice chair and just a few times a week or once a day, give yourself time to sit and just see what com comes to mind. This is a spiritual discipline. 
Breathing. People are talking more and more about breathing. Well, maybe that's what Jesus was doing in Luke 5, 16, underneath the stars, taking deep breaths. The Navy SEALs, they have a, a practice of taking in a deep breath, counting to four, holding it for four beats, letting it out for four beats, holding the hold for four beats. You do this, it literally slows, if you do this for a few minutes, it slows your heart rate down, it slows your body down. Breathing can be a spiritual discipline. Or drinking a cup of coffee, if it's good coffee, can be a spiritual discipline. Next time you have a good cup of coffee, stop and really savor what's happening. And think of the God who created taste buds that we could have delight and pleasure. And maybe say, thanks be to God. His love endures forever. Drinking a cup of coffee can be a spiritual discipline. Anytime we engage a practice that takes us out of the flow of ordinary time, what we're, what we're essentially doing is we're opening ourselves up to God the Father just like Jesus was. And who knows how to categorize or classify how that leads to transformation, but it opens us to a God in a way that absolutely over time does lead to transformation. And beneath all these practices, again, is that confession. I am a limited human being. I can't be in all places at once. I can't always say yes. I can't be all things to all people. Thanks be to God. I embrace my limitation. And my friends, what if this is one of our greatest witnesses to the world around us? What if this is one of our greatest, some of our greatest preaching about who God is, that he is the God who gives rest and delight. And indeed, as scripture says, he gives his beloved rest. In Romans 8, Paul says that all creation is waiting for the revelation of the children of God. What if part of how we reveal who God is is by living an unhurried life in which we actually take time out of the ordinary flow in order to become mature, content, and satisfied? So I wish this for you, I pray this for you and for me, that you have great maturity in the goodness of God and great delight in his love. And I wish you time, time to savor the goodness of our God. Time that will enable you to mature into all the goodness of God. Let me pray for us. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, how can you be so good that there is nothing but unending generosity in your kindness that when we are not worthy, you speak yes over us and that in our limitation, all we can ever really do is say yes back to you and somehow that's enough, you accept that. You love that. We're like little children who are just learning to swim and to you, it's just the joy of the fact that we're swimming to you that delights you, that causes you to so generously lavish your love on us. We pray that you would mature us into the full measure of Christ until the image of Christ is fully formed in us, that we would love with abandon, that we would become mature, lacking nothing. In these days when the world is in such peril and reactivity and loss of sinner, be our sinner. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray, amen.